Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. If you're on a good run, it doesn't last forever. If you're on a bad run, it doesn't last forever. So being willing to be flexible and introspective and understand what your needs and goals are. I think it's important. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm your host, Joe Cornwell, and today I'm joined by William Edwards. Today's episode is brought to you by BAM Capital, a trusted multifamily syndicator that has never missed a preferred payment and never lost an LP's investment. To learn more about investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com or click the link in the show notes. William is a managing partner in GDD Invest LLC. He is a general partner in three deals with 188 units, and he's a limited partner in over 5,000 units. He also does self-storage and land deals. William, thank you for joining us. How are you today? Thank you very much. I'm doing very well. So tell me a little bit about your background and how did you go from your pre-real estate career into your real estate journey? Yeah, certainly. So I had a business with a business partner for 24 years. We sold ERP and CRM software systems. I sold that business in 2015. And at that point, I started doing 1099 and some W-2 work in project management in the same line of work, same industries. The proceeds from that sale weren't enough to obviously retire on, which is why I was still doing W-2 and 1099 work. But I slept a little bit better at night. But I wanted to make sure I had a place where I could preserve that capital. I'm old enough to remember the the Black Friday, Black Monday, whatever that was in around the 90s. Of course, Y2K, 2008. And we didn't know about COVID at that point, 2019 hadn't rolled around, but I'd had enough older friends and family who'd really gotten hurt in 2008. They were either at retirement, near retirement, or in retirement, and took a hit in the market. That's where their financial wealth was based, and I didn't want that to happen. So I started looking, what else can I do, and what other asset classes are there to preserve that capital? So I started, my wife jokes that she lost me for about six or nine months. I was immersed in podcast and YouTube and books and trying to learn. And for me and where we are in my family and my stage of life, real estate checked most of those boxes. And then within that, obviously there are multiple asset classes. There's 
retail and self-storage and commercial and office and you know what happened office during you know COVID and we're still dealing with that right now as a matter of fact but multifamily residential check the most boxes for me so I decided to focus on that so to get my feet wet I started learning a little bit about syndication but I really wanted to own some of my own property so in 2019 me and my wife and we pulled our own personal funds we bought a 37 unit and ultimately sold that in 2021. But in the interim, at the same time we were buying that, we also started doing LP investments in other people's deals, other sponsors' deals. So we pooled and migrated a bit of our funds into solo 401ks, solo or self-directed IRAs, and started doing LP investments, limited partner investments, for those who may not be familiar with some of the vernacular, that every industry has its own vocabulary, and we get comfortable using that, but sometimes forget. Not everybody understands what those are, but LP is a limited partner, somebody who brings capital to a deal that's a syndicated deal. So I wanted to do that to get exposure and understand how Humpty Dumpty works. How do those deals work? How are they marketed? How are they managed? How are they operated? And then ultimately, hopefully, how do they wind down, either with a sale or if it's an interim period during the hold, is there a cash out refi? But I wanted to understand that. So we started doing LP investments at the same time we acquired that 37, which we sold in 2021. Have subsequently rolled that into several other deals, into a, an 84 unit, a 72 unit, and a 32 unit. And so that's where we are today in our portfolio. We've accumulated about 5,000 units in the LP space and 188 in the general partner or key principal space. The LP investments, I kind of had a little engine going, right? So as we would invest those funds, they would throw off cash distributions monthly, quarterly, or have a cash out refi or a capital event, which was, would be a, a sale, for example. And as we would build up enough money and have another tranche of cash to invest in the next deal, we would invest that. That has slowed down tremendously with what we're going through right now in our economic landscape with interest rates and cap rates. Several of those deals have paused distributions. Some people are looking at deals that have capital calls. So the speed of that has slowed down dramatically, but that's the method and the mechanism, and I'm committed to that philosophy and continue to do that today. I did not ask this in the intro. What market are you based in and where are you typically investing in? Let's start with your personal portfolio. We're located in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina region. Personal portfolio is exclusively North Carolina, South Carolina. So Charlotte, North Augusta, South Carolina, and then Greenwood, South Carolina. The LP investments are scattered across the Southeast, Dallas, I think there's only one deal left in Dallas right now, Atlanta, South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. So the Sun Belt is where the, all the LP investments are. I'm open and willing, and I think there's some good returns to be had in the Midwest. Phoenix has been a hot market for a long time. That's a possibility. And what I will share is that I continue, even though the pace of my deal is throwing off cash so that I can invest in the next deals. The pace of that has slowed a bit. I continue to look at deals, even though I may not be liquid all the time. So I want to be comfortable and kind of have a go-to list of sponsors that I'm comfortable with. I like the types of deals they go after, and I can see how they underwrite deals. So I look at more deals than I'm liquid enough to invest in at any point in time so that I do have a short list when I do get some liquidity, where to go. And that's something that everybody needs to remember. If you're syndicating a deal in your pool and your universe of prospective investors, you may think I only need 20 or I only may need 50. Well, your pool needs to be much larger than that because at any point in time, a prospective investor may not like your deal. They may not like that deal that you're bringing to them, 
or they maybe have a liquidity issue, right? I like the deal, but I'm just not liquid. I'm fully in and, and everything else, and I'm just not able to participate right now. So, like I said, even though I'm not actively investing with a sponsor specifically, I'll still look at their deals to get a feel and try to get comfortable with who they are and the way they operate. Yeah, and there's a few points in there I want to touch on. So, I don't know who coined the phrase, but I've heard it several times, and it's something I try to live by. It's like you get rich by going broke, meaning. Every time you get liquid, like you're, you're mentioning, you're reinvesting your funds and not sitting on a ton of loose capital at any given time, especially prevalent here in the last couple of years when we had shot up six, seven, eight percent inflation. It's like you don't want hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars sitting in the bank account, especially at that point when savings and money markets weren't even given a return. Your cash is just getting crushed by inflation. So it makes it a lot easier to be more aggressive and going after deals. Now, obviously, the market shifted a little bit. You are getting some better returns in the bonds and saving market, and it's also tougher to find deals that pencil out. So it's easier now to maybe sit on cash and, and look for opportunities. But you also mentioned that it's all going to be timing. When you have investors, they're going to have their timing as you have good opportunities as an operator that come across. That is all going to have to work out. And yeah, I agree with you. Having access to more potential money partners than needed is probably a good place to be. And I do want to touch on your experience as an LP. It sounds like you've invested in numerous LP deals and a lot of our listener base is, is people who passively invest in real estate. So let me start with some basics on that. When you first decided to invest as a limited partner, what was your process for determining who and how you wanted to invest your capital? Early on, it was very much trying to get comfortable with people that I had met that had a public presence. And that's how I knew, because I didn't live in this space. And most people that are coming into real estate as a limited partner, I don't even know that option exists. Our only, traditionally, and this I'm speaking for me, right? Even though I owned a business and we software businesses, my entire universe around investment options and opportunities were stock markets, bonds, equities, single family residences and rentals, for example, possibly. And that's about it. Or your home, right? Some people consider your home as an investment as you build equity in it. But that's all I really knew. So I didn't really understand that. As I started getting educated, of course, there's a lot to be learned from books and YouTube videos and podcasts. So I naturally gravitated toward those folks that made an impression on me. I was comfortable with their style. I was comfortable with the information they conveyed, who seemed honest. <laughs> that was important. And then what investment opportunities and platforms do they have? And that's really where I started. As I've gotten more educated and I've lived in the space now for a good number of years, I've got a lot of relationships and I've been introduced to people. So my world has expanded quite a bit. But honestly, as I was getting started, it was, who do I know? And I didn't know many people. And the people I knew were people who I'd met through an online presence predominantly. Okay. So it sounds like, at least initially... You're looking for people that have a reputation, have a brand, and have some credibility that they've created, hopefully from their track record, but also from online presence, social media, books, and things like that. Does that sound right? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then what Correct. was your process for vetting those operators? Because I have not invested passively in deals. I've always been active in my deals, but it is something that intrigues me to find out what are people's thought processes and what are they really looking for when it comes to investing? My criterion has changed a bit over the years, and I'll talk to that, and then I'll talk to where I started and where I am right now, right, and why I think the way that I do today versus the way I did when I first got started. When I first got started, I was really looking for a way to preserve capital. I wanted to make sure that what I had was protected and it was going to grow. Of course, I looked at returns. 
didn't really understand some metrics like IRR, internal rate of return, when I'm looking at those kind of things. So I really kind of broke it down in my mind's eye at that point into what's the average annual return. How long do we expect to have the capital locked up? Is this going to be a three-year investment or a 10-year investment or somewhere in between? And what type of return is it going to throw off? And understanding that, it's going to be, I'm just going to throw out a number that's maybe a 6% return is a 6%, this is a tax advantage return versus if I were 6% in a bond, that's a taxable, unless it's a treasury for a government bond, for example, but a 6% on the stock and the stock fluctuates and hopefully the real estate won't. So what I was looking for was to be able to preserve capital in the most tax advantaged way that I could. And that was really my early criteria and, and looked at return numbers a little bit, but I didn't really focus on those. I've actually had kind of three phases or seasons that I've gone through. So that led me to class B, class A type properties. They were going to be more stable. They weren't value add plays. They were more of a core investment. I started chasing returns a little bit and looking at some value add C class properties that could have a, a larger potential return. What I've learned is that those can be speculative <laughs> in some ways, and there's more risk associated with it, as you would suspect and know intuitively, a higher return is probably also potentially more risky. So some of the investments that I have that are paused that I was telling you about were those types of deals that were utilizing bridge debt. The plan was that we were going to do a, a renovation cycle and the renovation cycles and the properties and the occupancy are actually doing okay. They've gotten clobbered on interest rates. And even though they had rate caps on a lot of those deals as a protection, kind of an insurance policy to make sure rates don't top out above a certain percentage, those are starting to expire. Then now people have to refinance that deal at market rates, and that's burdensome. So I've moved into that, and I'm moving back towards where I started, which was I don't need the home runs every time. I need some doubles and some singles in my portfolio. So I'm being very deliberate and very diligent, which means I don't get to look at as many deals as other people could or would or as I used to be willing to look at. I'm much more looking at a stabilized deal, core type deals. It might not throw off as much money in year one as some other deals do. But what I've also learned is some of those returns, even if they offer a preferred return or a pref, you know, some of the vernacular that we use, which means if there's a return to be paid, the limited partners get it first and you're obligated to earn that return. Even if there's a deficiency that's running the first couple of years, it's made up in later years returns or at a capital event at a sale. What I've learned is that's risk, right? So you may be promised an eight pref, but you're only getting 3% the first year. You may be getting four or 5% the second year, and maybe five or 6% the third year versus a deal that's a core value add that's using fixed rate, long-term debt. It may pay 5% a year starting out and that's okay. I may not top out. It may not have as much of an opportunity for a big equity multiple in that deal, but it's consistent. It's mailbox money. It comes every month. And I tell people this a lot. Bills come every 30 days. They don't come every three years or every five years or every seven years. So I'm looking for the mailbox money, the consistent pay. There's something that's going to be stable. That's going to be there. And of course, we're going to have appreciation and growth. If it's an amortizing loan, which means it's not interest only, then I'm going to earn equity in the deal as that mortgage is paid down. And all of that, while I'm being paid to wait, is the most tax preferred asset class that there is. You make a lot of good points. So I'm an agent. I do multifamily as an operator as well. And I have conversations with 
investors of all experience levels. And the most common question I get aside from what's going on in the market is, well, what's the best deals to invest in? And that is such a subjective question. That's almost impossible to answer because you just mentioned through three seasons of just your limited partnership investing of how your mentality and what was best for you at the time and in the market has changed just over the last several years. So it's an impossible question to answer, but I think it's a very personal question. And what I try to explain to people is if you are working a job for minimum wage, you're probably better off going out and either having a business or doing really active real estate like flipping or buying hold where maybe you're doing all the rehab work or something where you're actually going to multiply your capital at a much faster rate than you're going to do staying at a fast food job or something. And then as you transition and your income goes up and up, then it might make more sense to be in a more passive role. Or if you're the type of person that has tens of millions of dollars in net worth, it probably doesn't make sense to go out there and try to flip houses for $20,000 in profit and pop. So anyway, the point of that being that it is such a personal question. And even hearing your story, it sounds like that's a constantly evolving answer based on where you are in your personal life, your financials, and obviously, as you mentioned, and what the market's giving us. The market today is completely different than it was two years ago, which is completely different than it was five years before that. Right. And we all live through different seasons of life. In those seasons, some are shorter and some are longer. In life, nothing stays the same, good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. If you're on a good run, it doesn't last forever. If you're on a bad run, it doesn't last forever. And so being willing to be flexible and introspective and understand what your needs and goals are, I think is important. So on your deals that you did personally, that you were a general partner in, tell me a little bit about what made you decide on those markets and what specifically were you looking for in asset types? I know you said multifamily, but what types of multifamily were you going after? So my first deal, I didn't want to do a value add deal and I was just getting started. It was my very first deal, but I knew enough about myself to know that I I didn't want to do fix and flips at scale. I didn't want to buy a depressed C-class value-add play. I didn't want to buy a job. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. I didn't want to buy a job. I wanted to buy an investment that was going to produce cash flow. It was going to need oversight. It was going to need management. And I hired third-party property management. It was 37 units. So it wasn't large enough to have on-site leasing office and maintenance people and all that. All that was outsourced. And it was off-site property management as well. But I wasn't managing it. I wasn't doing the the lease ups. I wasn't doing the evictions when that was necessary. I wasn't doing all the maintenance coordination that needed to happen because I didn't want to buy a job. Right. So I knew that I didn't want to do the value add play for me at that stage of, of life. And what that led me to was it was a B class property. It was 37 units. They were townhomes. I bought them in 2019. They were constructed in 2012. So they were relatively new, which meant it weren't going to require as much maintenance. It wasn't going to need a forced renovation cycle for some number of years, eventually every property gets tired and competition pops up and they're doing renovations or new construction, but it wasn't going to need it for a while. And the market was actually a secondary market. So it was in North Carolina, but it wasn't in a Charlotte or Raleigh. It was in a, a secondary market to those, but it was a good, stable and growing market. And it worked out real well. We did a great job. We operated it well. We bought it right before COVID. We bought it and we financed it through a credit union. I was told at the time, although I think I could have done it, that I wouldn't have qualified for agency debt because I didn't have the experience aspect. But since I was doing out third-party property management, I've been told subsequently I probably could have qualified for that. So I didn't even approach some of the brokers and discuss agency debt. 
we financed it through a local credit union, but we financed it at a fixed rate loan at 5.2. 18 months into it, when COVID was really starting to ramp up, we did a refi and refi down to 3.1. So that shaved some money off of the monthly debt obligations. We also appealed the property tax valuation. So I'd figured out because I was underwriting some other deals in that same market that were actually larger. For example, a 50 unit deal may have had a property tax assessment less than what mine was. It was basically the same vintage and, and same price point. What I figured out was because it was five buildings, but there were townhome configurations and they were each individually parceled. And it always had been operated by the original developer and as me as one entire apartment community, not as individual units. But the assessor's office said assess them as if they were individual single-family homes. So we did an appeal, got a shave of about 40% off of the, the property tax bill on that. Again, reduced the interest rate. We were raising rents during COVID, during that period of time. And our occupancy, it was between 95 and 100% all during COVID, except for normal turns. And that's really why it was down at 95 Otherwise, it would have been 100%. And we bought it as a long-term hold. My wife and I, we purchased it. That was going to be our retirement plan. This property is going to appreciate in value. Cash flow is going to continue to increase. This is our retirement plan or a big component of our retirement plan. It turns out, and I think this is probably the case anyway, after you own a property a couple of years, particularly in a market like it was in 2020 and 2021, we started getting unsolicited calls and offers from brokers. We turned them away. It's a long-term hold. We're not interested. We're going to sit on it. And one guy sent me an unsolicited LOI, a letter of intent, which is an offer letter from a prospective buyer that we ultimately ended up going with. But it was an offer we just couldn't refuse. So we, we decided to let it go. And like I said, it was a home run. I'll probably never have another one like that in my investing career. I'm grateful for it. But Can it, you share some numbers on it? Yeah, so we had bought it in 2019 for $2.575 million, which is about $68,000, 69000 a unit which we didn't realize how good a value it was at the time, but it turned out it was a great value. Again, it was Class B in 2012 construction. We sold it in September 2021 for 4.3. And like I said, it did well. Yeah, it did very well. that's great. And it sounds like you weren't doing, like you said, any major value add other than normal turnover. Correct. Yeah, definitely a home run deal for a two-year hold. So with these markets, I know you said you're in the Carolinas. I know you live there, but outside of that, what do you like about the Carolinas and why are you going after more deals in those markets? For me, as a GP, that's where I look. My landscape and where I look and I look around and my vision is in the Carolinas. And it's primarily because I know the markets in the regions. And when somebody mentions a community, I have a sense of where it is and what kind of community it is. If I start talking about deals in some other locales, not that I couldn't get educated and learn up on those, but I just know them, right? We vacation in South Carolina. We have family in South Carolina, North Carolina. I'm from Durham originally, although I live in Charlotte now. I've got family in Raleigh and Cary and Mebane. My wife's from Burlington. So we know that space and we know the area and, and what's going on in those areas. And because of that, we also can stay apprised of what's happening economically in those areas. You know, when Toyota announces they're going to build a $1.3 billion battery factory in a community, I kind of know where that is and what that means. I pay attention when I hear that Apple's going to build their East Coast headquarters in the Research Triangle and carry. I know what that means. So just familiarity is really the short answer. It's just because I'm familiar with the area. That makes complete sense. I get that question a lot. I'm based in Cincinnati and my entire personal portfolio is here in Southwest Ohio and Northern Kentucky. So all in the tri-state Cincinnati area. And people say, well, you could probably get better returns somewhere else. I said, 
It is possible. I'm not going to say that every deal here in Cincinnati is the best deal you can find, but it is something like having that intimate market knowledge, the familiarity and knowing exactly what's happening on a micro level that a lot of investors don't have when they're investing throughout the country or internationally. So I completely understand and agree with that philosophy. And I help out some other investors. You network a lot, right? Or you should, you should be networking a lot. And I've met a lot of people all over the country, but I've got some acquaintances and some friends in some other states that want to invest in the Carolinas. A lot of people want to invest in the Carolinas, as a matter of fact. But they had an opportunity that I didn't go after. It wasn't for me, but I helped them out and did some on-site visits and some due diligence work for them. They're at a state team, and it was nearby, and I was able to do that. Again, because I know the area. They knew me, and they knew to reach out. It sounds like you're still actively looking for deals as an operator. Is that correct? I am. I'm working on one right now that's a smaller deal. It's a 20-unit deal, okay. and I'll probably JV that one instead of syndicate it. It's smaller, and it makes sense. And by the time we syndicate it, the numbers don't work so much anymore. It's a smaller deal, but it also happens to be in the Carolinas. Okay, so in that line of thought, what are you underwriting, let's say, in the next 12 months? With the market we're in and a little bit of the volatility and the rate market and things like that, what are you looking for when you're underwriting these deals, and what are you projecting the market's going to do in the next 12 months? Well, as we're recording this, right before we went live, I was noticing that Jay Powell was having his stand up and talking about interest rates, and they're going to hold steady for a while. Nobody knows what the future holds, but the talking heads are predicting there'll probably be a couple of rate cuts next year, maybe some more in 2025. But it seems like we might have topped out on rate increases. And admittedly, we all got caught by surprise. The guys that used bridge debt and the guys that didn't, we all got caught by surprise. We've never had this fast a rise in interest rates in this short amount of time in our economic history. It's historic. So I think we've probably topped out. I think they're going to start trending down. I think to your earlier point, people that have been able to accumulate cash or are sitting on cash are going to be in a really great spot. If people can hang on and do okay through this period of time and let rates, I won't say normalize, but maybe stabilize is a better word. I don't know if or when we'll ever get back down to the low threes <laughs> or twos, but gosh, man, if it gets in the high threes or fours compared to where we are now, that'd be fantastic. What am I looking at in the future? I'm, I'm looking at the same types of things I'm looking at now. Stabilized core products, the numbers have to work, and that's the challenge. And again, getting numbers that'll work, and that's the challenge on every deal. It used to be back in 2019, 2020, 2021, it was hard to even win deals, even though you could make the deals work because there's so much 1031 money being thrown around. And I say thrown around, but the reality is that people were making windfall profits on deals that they had and were desperate to put that money to work and not have to pay a huge tax bill. So in my opinion, world according to William, right? We're overpaying in some cases and buying assets that would not have otherwise normally bought just so that they wouldn't have to pay a tax bill. But that made it hard to compete because if I'm coming in and I'm looking at putting 25 or 30% down, they're putting 50% or more down and they're on the clock. For those people who don't understand how 1031 exchanges work, you have 45 days from closing to identify traditionally up to three replacement properties and then 180 days from closing of your sale of your relinquished property to close on the purchase of your replacement property. So you're kind of under the gun. So they're shotgunning brokers and sellers and everybody else to try to find a place to park that money quick. So I think they probably bought some deals they wouldn't have otherwise bought. But 
it made it hard to compete. If you're just a, a regular investor, you had to be patient and not get discouraged. Maybe that's a better way to say it because you lost a lot of deals to people who had 1031 money that were grabbing up deals as soon as they hit the market or before they hit the market. Yeah, definitely seemed like competition has cooled off a ton. And I think the biggest challenge, at least what I'm seeing in my market is just price discovery. Sellers still want what they could have got a year or 18 months ago. And buyers are looking at underwriting at today's numbers. And that's usually going to create a pretty significant disconnect. Sometimes anywhere from 10 to 30% is what I'm seeing in the deals I'm underwriting. It's like, if they want two million for a deal, then my number is like one point six. And it's sellers who can't sell at that number are basically just gonna sit on it and wait and see what happens, I guess. And and that's kind of a common theme. I don't know if you're seeing that in the Carolinas. Yeah, people that don't have to sell aren't going to sell. And you're not gonna steal a property from them. If they're asking three million dollars for a property, I'll just pick a number, you're not gonna swoop in and get it for two point four. Yeah. You, it's gonna be close to three, if not three. Yeah. I mean, unless they have to sell. If they're in a situation where they need to, then we're seeing that in single family homes too, that people, unless they have to sell or not right now, they may be in a mortgage that they got for three and a half percent. They're not going to swap that out for 7% mortgage on another replacement. Yeah. I would say, I think in single families, there's a lot more leverage there because you know, they're typically not on short-term financing and things like that. But in the multifamily space, it's like at some point, these people that have the adjusting rates or loans that are going to expire, all those things are going to have to make a decision. And the ones that are 20, 30% over what it is today in certain cases, or at least that's what they're asking for on a sale. If they're putting it out with a broker, something's going to have to give, whether it's meeting in them somewhere in the middle, or like you said, they're just not going to get to cash out everything they thought that they could or have to get out from under that loan, hopefully without a loss. So it'll be interesting to see. I yeah, think the next yeah. six to 12 months will give us a lot more of that price discovery on the people that do have to transact and sell. But yeah, be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Are you ready to transition to the best ever lightning round? Yeah. What is your best ever book recommendation? I will tell you, it's probably not the most exciting book, but one that made an impression on me because when I was starting to look around at the landscape and where can where can I start establishing an investment presence? Tom Wheelwright wrote a book, and it's Tax-Free Wealth, I think is the name of it. Of course, on everybody's list are going to be the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books and a lot of those others. But as far as making an impression and really helping me understand why real estate and what real estate can do for you, that's one that I still remember. Best ever way you like to give back? We do a lot of things in the community. Both of my kids are adopted. We did foster care before we adopted our children. We adopted them out of foster care. They're now 16 and 19. So we're still plugged into that. My wife actually volunteers for a local community organization that helps support foster parents. So what most people don't realize, particularly if you have infants or small children that are placed with you, you may not have any diapers. You may not have a car seat for an infant that needs a car seat. You may not have the clothing for that particular size. So this is a, an organization that takes donations and helps out foster placement. So when placement happens, if they need something immediately, they can help get them jump started and get them kind of a starter kit. Ironically, my son's also an Eagle Scout, and he did his Eagle Scout project for that same organization. So we're very big and very much in support of the, the foster care programs around here. Very cool. And give me a mistake made in an investment deal and a lesson you learned from it. Walk every unit. <laughs> the very first deal that I had, and it was recoverable. It didn't kill us. That deal turned out to be a home run, that 37 unit. But when we were doing due diligence, 
it was 37 units across five buildings, and we just pick and choose one or two units in each building for the walkthroughs and for the inspection. We had an HVAC contractor come in, and we just picked a couple of units in each building. We should have looked at them all because it turns out we had a spate that first summer of HVAC unit failures to the point where they needed replacements. So that was not budgeted. We had capital reserves and operating reserves allocated, but we didn't expect to have to replace as many units as we did that first year. So if we'd have had them looked at, we'd have had a better feel and sense for it and at least been prepared for that. But, but I guess my advice is be sure to look at every unit. Yeah. Great advice. William, thank you so much for joining us. How can people learn more about what you're doing and connect with you? Absolutely. Online, my website is gddinvest, as in golfdogdog.com. My email is william.edwards at gddinvest.com. I've got an Instagram and Twitter handle, william.edwards.multifamily on Instagram. And I think it's william.edwards.mf, I think, on Twitter. I think they have a shorter handle requirement over there. Awesome. And yeah, we will be sure to link to those in the show notes. Best ever listeners, if you got value from today's show, please leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. Make sure you're following us and William on social media. And I hope everyone has a best ever day. William, thanks again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.